Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. What does a transformed life look like? Well, in today's program, we're continuing our current series, Knowing Jesus, How the Gospel Changes Us, with guest speaker, Pastor Steve Bray. Today, we'll discuss how knowing Jesus changes our lifestyle. So let's begin as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 29. Today, we're going back to the Bible once again to learn and discover what it means to know Jesus. We are being honest, and we're asking this all-important question. How does the gospel change us? Ephesians 4 has been our launching pad this week, and we've learned that knowing Jesus changes our goals. Knowing Jesus, truly knowing Him, changes our destiny. Knowing Jesus changes our outlook on life, and today we discover that knowing Jesus changes our lifestyle. In other words, how we actually live life. Now, you might ask, why is that important? Well, wherever you are in this country, you have likely heard it said of Christians, I can't believe he claims to be religious or she claims to be a Christian with the way they live. They're such a hypocrite. Or maybe you've even witnessed that yourself. Those folks who say, I'm religious, I know God, I'm a Christian, but you wonder, what? No way. The truth is, Christianity today has a bad name in much of Canada. By and large, many Christians go about living their lives just as they did before they believed in Christ. And the result has been a real disconnect between what we profess and then how we live. And that has impacted one of the greatest ways we can be witnesses with our lives. Gandhi, one of the most respected leaders of modern history, a Hindu, Gandhi nevertheless publicly admired Jesus and often quoted scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now, I read that when missionary E. Stanley Jones had a chance to meet with Gandhi, he asked him this question, though you quote the words of Christ often? Why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? Amazingly, Gandhi replied, Oh, I don't reject your Christ. In fact, I may indeed love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Brennan Manning, who wrote that book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, said this tragic statement, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. Now, I really want you to hear me. I'm not talking about legalism, where we simply keep a set of rules on the outside and then you're all right. Nor am I saying that if you've prayed a prayer, attended a church, own a Bible and read it occasionally— that you can then simply live life any way you please, and you and God are good. And that's not what Paul says either. Having laid the foundation of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we come to chapter 4, and Paul begins describing how that theology leads to or results in a transformed life. You might find it amazing. There are 41 commands in the book of Ephesians. Only one appear in chapters 1 through 3. 
40 different commands appear in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So remember that quote from Kevin DeYoung yesterday? The key to Christian maturity is understanding what God chooses not to remember our sins and what he always remembers, his promises. So again, truly knowing him, knowing Jesus, changes us from the inside out. And now we spend our time and energy responding to that love, not trying to earn it. So when I read this passage, do not hear, this is what you do to be right with God. I want you to hear it as, this is how you respond when you are right with God. So Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then Paul sums up, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul's focus is on what makes up a Christian. I like to think of it as our spiritual DNA of the true believer. Now remember, the theme of Ephesians is unity. Unity in Christ, unity in the body of Christ, which we learned is the church, and unity in our hearts toward Christ. We are a new person if we are saved. Now, consider the background of this letter of Ephesians. Paul planted the church at Ephesus because of their potential to influence the Roman Empire, the Roman world. They were located at the crossroads of the Roman Empire. The Ephesians were positioned to share their faith in Jesus Christ with a lot of people. But Paul knew that their verbal witness would only be as strong as the extent to which they lived out their salvation. He wanted the Roman world to not only hear the good news through them, but to see it lived out in the church. The primary place to demonstrate faith was in connections to fellow believers. Now, I want to share with you something that I have personally been blown away by, and really it's become the centerpiece of my life and my ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in St. John's, Newfoundland. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, what is it? That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then Jesus says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says the proof that we are truly Christians, that we know Jesus, is how we love others who know Jesus. And then he goes even further. In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm always comforted by that verse because that's Jesus praying for you and me over 2,000 years ago. Then in verse 21, he says, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, here's the result. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Understand what Jesus has just said in these two passages. How you and I love one another proves we are truly followers of Jesus, that we really know him. And how we are in unity with one another confirms to a watching world that Jesus really is who he says he is. That, folks, is profound. And to accomplish this, we need a deep commitment to one another and to living this holy and righteous life that's made possible through Christ. So to reach your or our redemptive potential in Christ, certain transitions need to happen, not only in individual lives, but in the church or the body of Christ as a whole, and that's where our text begins. Throughout this text, you will see the whole put-off, put-on idea mixed with the positive results that motivate us. Paul begins this section with the word, therefore. And he does this not only to refer back to verses 17 to 24, but he's also making a point. This has really happened. Something has really taken place. And what I mean is that Paul is not merely calling us to live a moral life. He's not simply saying, live a higher standard than everyone else around you. Because the truth is, none of us could accomplish that. You can't just turn over a new leaf morally with God. Paul is now going to demand a high form of behavior precisely because something decisive has already taken place. We have already been made new in Christ, and that is why we should and we must act like it. What is the spiritual DNA of a Christian? Well, here Paul begins to discuss the practical and specific behaviors that must characterize every believer who knows Jesus. How often do we know the truth, but struggle to act accordingly in our everyday lives? We must remind ourselves regularly of who we are in Christ and how He empowers us to live a different lifestyle. Well, when we come back, Pastor Steve unpacks how we're to live out the gospel through our words and our behaviors. Ever since Back to the Bible Canada began, it's always been our number one passion to draw people of all ages and backgrounds into a closer walk with Jesus every day. Through daily radio programs, resources, and so much more, we strive to bring the unchanging eternal truths of God's Word to Canadians from coast to coast. But we can't do it alone. If today you've been impacted by the broadcast, would you consider a gift to support this ministry and to sustain a legacy of Bible teaching and engagement so important to our nation today? To donate, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Pastor Steve Bray. Now as we said, We've already been made new in Christ, and that's why we should and must act like it. So I want you to think of Lazarus with me. Just as Jesus called him out of death into life, so have we. And just like he would have shed the old burial cloths and put on new ones fit for living, so should we. And so how does Paul illustrate this or define this? Notice he starts with our mouth. 
The word Paul uses for falsehood covers all deception, not just an intentional bold-faced lie. This word includes the so-called little white lie. It covers that insincere smile. Or how about this one, that feeling-saver conflict-avoiding reply, nothing's wrong when something definitely is. The word falsehood includes embellishments to make us look good, or what about exaggerations to make fun of someone or to make a joke about someone, whereas we are to be a people of sincerity. Sincerity is a Greek word used in art. A sculpture was designed or designated sincere if no wax had been used to fill in the cracks and flaws of the work. This prevented a buyer from paying for a flawed piece of art patched temporarily with wax. So we're to be a people of sincerity. We're not supposed to be a people who pretend or hide. Most falsehoods arise from self-protection and self-promotion. We're shielding ourselves or trying to get something from someone else. Instead, we're called to speak the truth in love. Why? Well, we're all members of the same body. We're all attached to the same head who is Jesus Christ. So we're to consistently and constantly reflect his image by being truth tellers. The Bible tells us that God is truth. Back in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, this is what the Bible says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And again, I'm going to quote John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truthfulness reflects God and grows community because now you have a freedom to be safe and to share. You can be honest. You don't have to run and hide because all of the things that we struggle with, Jesus has already paid for. So you don't have to tell the face-saving lie. We can be honest, and that's a testimony to the watching world. And next, Paul deals with anger. Now, we often look at verse 26 and think, okay, okay, there, you see, I can get angry and not sin. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. In this passage, he actually is quoting Psalm 4.4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds, now notice, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The emphasis of Paul here is on preventing anger from causing sin, because anger held on to gives the devil control over you. In Hosea 7 verse 6, Hosea the prophet says, For with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. We must not give the devil room in our lives to operate. And anger is one place of inroad for him, a Trojan horse for his attack. Paul is saying that knowing Jesus delivers us from anger because anger is largely a self-centered emotion. R.C. Sproul said, all anger in our humanity comes from pain, and we want someone to blame. 
And anger almost always leads to other sins and will often lead others to sin. Hence what James writes in James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Now listen, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Folks, community dies when people simmer in anger. We must be peacemakers for an enduring and maturing community. And this is especially true of the church whose members are called to reflect God. Think about this. Thank God he doesn't let his anger simmer. God took the initiative to make peace with us when he had every right to blast us into smithereens from righteous anger. And then Paul changes gears and moves from anger to stealing and work. And now some of you again might say, I don't struggle with this. Oh, really? Well, let me list some of the ways that we can steal. We steal from God when we don't worship him as we ought, or when we set our own interests before his. We steal from him when we fail to honor him by our lives or fail to tell others of his love. We steal from an employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable or when we waste time and consistently leave work early. And if you're a business owner, you can steal by overcharging for what you make or for the service you render. We can steal if we sell an inferior product. We steal by borrowing and not repaying. We steal by damaging another's reputation. We steal from ourselves when we waste time, talents, and our resources that God has entrusted to us. And Paul says, stop stealing and start working. But the motive for working is even different. He says in our passage, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then Paul finishes with what we all have to admit is the place where we likely struggle the most, our words. Have you ever heard the little statement, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct? But friends, a critical cutting spirit is not what knowing Jesus looks like. Paul says we are to be known for using language that builds up. How would you be described? Paul uses the word corrupting. This would be used to describe spoiled fish or rotting fruit, and we all know how that smells. It can also mean crumbling stones. So, words that tear down and destroy, whereas we are now called to build up, to unify, and to edify. This I read about this, and it was tragic. Have you ever heard the singer Karen Carpenter? She sang that famous song, We've Only Just Begun. And when she and her brother first started singing, one of the critics that covered the band referred to her as Richard's chubby little sister. And that comment demoralized her. And from that moment on, every time she looked in the mirror, she said to herself, I'm Richard's chubby little sister. She started taking drugs to lose weight. She battled with bulimia and anorexia. And she allowed these critical words to eat her up on the inside. And she died of heart failure at the age of 32. A tragic example of someone who was conquered by the careless words of another person. Now here's a question for us all. How many deaths have taken place in our church, in our relationships? If you have had this done to you, then you know how it feels. A critical spirit has its roots in pride. We are all too often like the Pharisee of Luke 18. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. We are quick to see and to speak of the faults of others. 
But as Abraham Lincoln once said, he has the right to criticize who has the heart to help. When we know Jesus, we know how he talked. It was truthful. It was with love. And it was meant to change the person addressed for the good. We are to talk to or to talk to build up. Paul said in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. And when you know Jesus, you will be known for how you speak to people. And there again will be grace, patience, mercy, and love. So once again, do you know Jesus? How has the gospel that Jesus lived and died for you, that he paid the price for your sin and mine, that he rose victoriously over Satan and sin, make a difference in the way you talk to and about others? It should make all the difference in the world. Pastor Steve, I'm still thinking about the uh, Gandhi illustration that you gave and then putting that together with all the speech language that's here. I mean, speaking falsely, being angry, and then later on, no corrupting talk. You know, how I speak can make it hard or easy for anyone to come to know our Savior. Absolutely. Especially when the words you're using and the life you're living don't match. And we have to understand it's not an either or, but a both end. People need to hear the words of God, the words of the Bible, the whole story of the gospel, but then people need to see how all of that makes sense and looks in the lives of people who claim to believe it and follow him. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Because when we uh, actually communicate the gospel to others, we do it in a number of ways, don't we? I mean, we share the gospel as our testimony, but we really are sharing the gospel in the way we, we speak all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Pastor Steve, again, thank you so much for a, a wonderful word. I mean, I was so deeply blessed by the, you know, the, the comments about uh, what somebody had said to Karen Carpenter and uh, those kind of things. And uh, we recognize that we communicate either life or death in our words constantly. Amen. This has been a practical word from Ephesians 4 about how knowing Jesus changes the way we think and how we speak and how we act. Our lifestyle ought to be different from the world around us, and it demonstrates that we follow Jesus. Has this message impacted your faith today? Let's take the time to reflect upon how the gospel is changing our words, emotions, and attitudes towards others. It's not easy, but it's a sure sign that we're saved. Don't miss tomorrow's program as we wrap up this series with guest speaker Pastor Steve Bray as he teaches a final lesson on how Jesus changes our relationships. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, Solomon writes, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. And then in verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If we are to ever learn the secrets of wisdom, then we must study the book of Proverbs. It's God's message for all who desire to learn how to live wisely and well. In Dr. Neufeld's series this past month called Skillful Living, we learned all about this compelling subject. Well, today is your final opportunity to ask for the Skillful Living series for free on CD. Listen again, reflect, apply, and then share these messages with others. 
Call for your free copy today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or email info at backtothebible.ca.